Good morning. Welcome to you all. What do you think about our new guy? Huh? Pastor Jeff? We are so pumped to have him on staff, and uh, it's just good to have another voice in the house. We're loving that. Um, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. My name is Janice. I am one of the staff pastors here as well. Our senior pastor, Joe Wood, is back in the house just now, but he was gone this morning. Um, and this is just a chance for us to let you know uh, something. There are many people come to the vineyard and they're like, oh, it's that non-denominational church that doesn't connect to anything else. Not so, right? There are many vineyards across the United States, and there's actually actually quite a bit of structure involved. And uh, our senior pastor here is an overseer, an area leader over six other churches in our um, region. And so uh, he keeps track of them. So when he's not filling the pulpit here, he's out and about. So we didn't want you to think he was like off the clock, but uh, now he's like in the front seat. But anyway, that's what's going on there. We are in the middle of a series on Romans. And uh, as Pastor Jeff was saying, we're so excited about that. We're going in uh, deep uh, in our small groups and on Sunday mornings. And believe me, this is a book that could, uh, we could spend a year on. We're not going to, but you could spend that much time on it. But we're going to spend several weeks. And uh, so we'll be giving you kind of a flyover view of some of the things in this wonderful, wonderful book. Here's what we know so far. This is what we've established in the first two weeks of this series. Number one. Everybody needs Jesus, right? This is what the Apostle Paul was getting across to the Romans because he's speaking to a world that is divided very binary style between the Jews by ethnicity and by their faith history, very separate from everybody else called the Gentiles, not Jewish by ethnicity and not Jewish in their faith, right? So the Jews and the Gentiles, he's saying Jesus is for everybody. Everybody needs Jesus. Number two, because sin, because sin. And if you don't believe me, we learned all about that last week in the second chapter of Romans. Goodness, there's a huge list of sins from the most atrocious things that you think you would never ever be a part of to the most menial thing that you're like, why is that in the list, right? We have everything from murder and greed to disobeying your parents, right? I mean, because sin, all sin separates us from God. And then the good news, so that was the problem we discussed last week. And then the solution that we learned is Jesus died to set us free. He died to set us free from our sin. He died to set us free from the law, the list of rules that the Jews clung to as, as their saving grace. And he's saying, no, that's not going to cut it anymore. Jesus died for all of that. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel message that Paul is getting across to the Romans. And if you can read the book of Romans and come out of that and not understand how to be saved, read it again, because it's just there over and over again. Here's what he says in Romans 5, 8 through 10. It's not going to be our corner text for the morning, but, but I, I want to start here. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This is the good news. Or maybe if you grew up in church, or maybe if you watch football, you learn to summarize it a little easier with John 3:16, because John says the same thing, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That probably doesn't match that. I learned it in King James as a child. But it's the message. That's the core of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. If you receive Jesus into your life and you get hit by a bus the next minute, 
You get to go home with Jesus and everything's happy and easy. But if you receive Jesus into your life and you surrender your life to him and you don't get hit by a bus, it might not be that easy to live the life that God has for us. So, so that's the, the crux of this, right? It's not always that easy. After you've surrendered, now what? Now what? What is the last thing you attempted in your life that seemed easier at the outset than it turned out to actually be? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of all those Pinterest fails that people that take pictures of. You're like, oh, I can do that. You know, the DIY project, oh yeah, I can, I can do that. Yeah, that'll be easy, right? My husband and I were talking about this as I was preparing for the message and he said, parenting. It's like, yes, you're, you're gonna have a kid, it's so easy, it's gonna be great. And then you get this child and no one gives you a manual. There is just not, you don't have any idea. I met with a parent this morning who was just so sleep deprived, they're barely functioning. Yes, that's, that's what happened. It looks easier than it turns out to be. Well, let me give you a, a little story about something that seemed easier than it, than it turned out to be for me. Uh, folks, it is tax season. Are you, in, are you excited about that? Tax season. Uh, maybe some of you are like rock stars and you do your own taxes. Good for you. You, I, you can have a gold star for that. There was a time when I did that. I, do, I no longer do my own taxes. I have PTSD. Let me explain. When we were first married, when we were young marrieds, um, my husband was working and uh, it was the only income for the house, so we only had one W-2 form to deal with. You know, he was making like a buck fifty an hour. That's what it felt like, you know, 30-some years ago. And we had two little people, so we had two dependents. That's easy. I can do math. I actually took accounting classes, so I thought that was going to be easy. And, but for all of you who college students are like, what's the matter with you? There was no TurboTax back then, okay? <laughs> There were no computers for that. They gave you a bunch of really complicated forms and a pencil with an eraser. And you had, I mean, my numbers were correct, but you had to put them in the right boxes, okay? And like follow the form and the whole bit. And, and I'm like, I can do this. It's easy. It won't be that complicated. And I filled out our taxes and I did it fairly early in the year, like, you know, in early February so that I would know where we stood. And I was horrified to discover that we owed the federal government $900, $900. Now that may not seem like much to you now, but in perspective to what we made, that was a paycheck and a half. So that was three quarters of a month's income for us at that moment. And we were not exactly Dave Ramsey. I don't even know if he was alive. He was probably in debt back then, but he, <laughs> well, he was, wasn't he way back in the day? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we didn't have a Dave Ramsey fund set up for that. And so I was so horrified and I felt guilty like we have done something wrong. As young people, we have like played fast and loose with a W-4 form, you know, where you count dependents. So like, what did I do wrong that we owe so much money to the government? And I felt so badly about it. I told no one except my husband. So we knuckle down. We eat beans and rice and, you know, gravy for months trying to save up and we did we saved it up and I'll never forget sitting at my kitchen table and writing out that check for 900 and some dollars and putting it in this thing called an envelope with a stamp because that's the only way you paid back then and, and, and put it in the mailbox and I want you to know that once I wrote that check all that we had left to our name besides our two little children was $14.83 
$14.83 until he got paid again. And we were like, we made it. We, you know, we're going to be, but now I, you know, as soon as the little snail mail man took that letter away, I was so angry. And I'm like, and now I finally had the guts to tell someone. I told my mother, I cannot believe we owed this much money. And I just wrote the check and she said, Janice, there is no way you kids owe that much money. There's no way. Let me see it. So I gave her my forms and she's much better at math than me. And sure enough, I had messed up. We didn't owe the government anything. They owed us. But now my check is in that nasty little envelope halfway to wherever. And I'm like trying to run down the mailman to get it or something. And, and then I'm like, well, maybe I can stop payment on the check. And I called around and they said, don't ever stop payment on an IRS check. You don't ever want to do that. All you can do is file an amendment and, you know, in three months they'll find it and maybe they'll adjust it and whatever. So sure enough, you know, we suffered with $14.83 for a little while until it took several months until it all evened out. Folks, it looked so much easier than it turned out to be. And sometimes when we have tackled something that turned out to be much harder than we expected, we either feel so guilty about it, we don't even ask for the help that's around us. We don't ask for any counsel. We, don't, we just kind of hold on and think that we're going to muddle through and fix this on ourselves by ourselves. And I'm telling you, sometimes it's not easy. It's not that easy to do the things that need to happen. Sometimes living for Jesus isn't that easy. It's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. Believing in Jesus isn't going to insulate us against hard times. It's not. This is not a prosperity gospel. If you've heard that somewhere, that you surrender your life to Jesus and your bank account's going to blossom and your relationships are going to magically get better and you're suddenly going to have a degree and make more money. No, none of that is guaranteed to us. This is what Paul says about it in Romans 5. This one isn't going to be up there, but just listen. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. See, that's what we're really signing up for. You might be signing up for some suffering along the way. And Paul confesses that his good intentions, even at living out this life, don't always work out that well. So the scripture I want to work out of this morning is found in Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that or your devices or you can watch up above. I loved this passage as a kid. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. I think because it sounded like Dr. Seuss a little bit. And uh, it was memorable to me, first of all, because it was vulnerable. And second of all, because it was just kind of sing-songy. And uh, I don't think you'll ever forget it either. Are you ready? This is the, the great Apostle Paul speaking. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I, what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. 
but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And I love that. Folks, this morning this message is going to be part comfort and part challenge, right? We're going to be comforted in the notion that we, like the Apostle Paul, struggle. But I'm also going to challenge us that we must fight back against this sin nature. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to do that. If there's anything, though, that I think you can get out of this passage from Paul, except that Dr. Seuss clearly learned from him, not the other way around, right? I mean, this is the beginning of it. The sin nature calls to us. The sin nature is is almost irresistible. It's almost like that sign that says, wet paint. And you just, you kind of have to, don't you? You just kind of have to know if if the sign is out of date. Maybe it's dry now. I just need to know. Is it going to be dry? You, You just kind of, you weren't thinking about touching the wall until it said wet paint. Now... I must touch the wall. Maybe it's a museum. You know, I studied history. I thought that's what I was going to do for a living. And so I studied history. And some people are amused to find out that I detest museums. Museums to me are filled with things that need dusting. And that doesn't interest me at all. Except unless it's an art museum. If it's an art museum, I'm all over it. My husband and I got to go to the uh, Chicago, the one in Chicago. I don't know the name of it. But anyway, it was fancy. It was fun. And, and we walked around. And, but in an art museum, they have these, these velvet ropes. And they're supposed to keep you from touching. And they have people walking around watching you to make sure you don't touch the painting. And I'm like, don't you need to like, I mean, it's a sensory experience. I just need to touch the brush strokes and see what's really there. And then if you take me to the sculpture area where there are these Greek classical sculptures that have seriously survived a thousand years and somebody touched them, right? Somebody broke a few of them actually. And I, you know, you just want to, you just want to feel the, the smoothness of that stone and try to figure that whole thing out. Folks, it's not just us. My dog has this problem too, okay? When we lived in our last home, we had just gotten uh, our male Rottweiler that we still have, and, uh, and he was a puppy, and whenever we get a new dog, a new puppy, I, I mentally calculate and prepare myself for the loss, right? How many, how many pairs of shoes will get chewed up? You know, what's going to happen to the couch? What's going to happen to the pillows? Whatever. I want you to know this puppy never ate a single pair of shoes. He never destroyed a single blanket, not a pillow, but he ate my house. He, he just had this thing, whatever he was laying next to. So if he was laying on the floor against the wall, he would gnaw on the baseboard. I don't really understand. He would just gnaw on that. And then we had these two windows that looked out over the backyard, and there was lots to look out at out there. And so he would sit there at that window, and he was a tall, I mean, Rottweilers are large, so his chin would just rest on the windowsill, and he would look outside. And then, and then, and then his little head would go, and he would start gnawing on my windowsill. He would eat my windowsill while he was seriously distracted, looking out the window. And I'm like, 
Oh my goodness, it was so bad, we had to have the windowsills fixed and replaced before we sold the house. Because I'm, I'm telling you, there are things in your life and in my life that are at windowsill height. And they need to be moved. And we need to not be resting our jaws on certain things that are just becoming a kind of a, a visceral response. And the way, because it's close by, it's right there, it's near to us, and we have to be careful about that. Now, there are some people who claim that, and, and I'm not going to say that they're lying, I'm just saying there are some people who report that after they surrender their lives to Jesus, they experience this immediate cure from whatever their vices are. You know, they just immediately lose all interest in the substances they were abusing, the behaviors that they were a part of. They suddenly, sin doesn't even smell good to them anymore. They just have walk, walked away from the whole thing. And I'm not saying that they're lying. I'm just saying, if that's you, God bless you. Because for every one of you who has experienced an immediate deliverance, from all of those interests in sin when you surrender to Jesus, there's a thousand more of us who wake up every single day fighting our sin nature. Every single day, we wake up like the Apostle Paul and say, the things I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I don't want to do, that is the stuff that I end up doing. You know, when I was a kid, I used to want a really dramatic uh, conversion story. Paul had a, a dramatic conversion story, right? The Apostle Paul was someone who had persecuted the Christians of the day. And if you're unfamiliar with, with this piece of history, Jesus had just died, risen from the dead, and gone back into heaven. And upon his death, now we have the Christian church starting, right? Now anyone who believes that he died for their sins, that is the Christian faith. And for the Jewish people, that was uh, an abomination. That was something that threatened their way of life. And so Paul as a good Jew, was persecuting and killing anyone who became a Christian until he became one himself. All right? So he has this dramatic story and this turnaround, and, and I always wanted something like that because I thought people would be impressed with the dramatic story, and they, would, and they would come to love Jesus easier. But my story wasn't that dramatic. I grew up in a little country church, and we had about 70, 80 people, and every so often we would have a guest speaker come in, an evangelist of some sort who was, you know, fire and brimstone, and, and you know, spoke, a, sometimes you just need a fresh voice to wake up the congregation, and, and he would give an altar call, and people went forward, and, uh, and then they took you down to the Sunday school rooms and, you know, paired people up with you to pray with you to receive Jesus, and the Sunday school rooms were full by the time I went up, and so I ended up giving my life to Jesus in a little furnace room. And it's the only room left. And this lovely woman, I can still see the little metal folding chair. That's what we used to have years ago, students. Little metal folding chairs. And, um, and we sat in there and I gave my life to Jesus. And I wanted it to be this dramatic turnaround. But at age seven, I really wasn't hooked on too many things yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wasn't hooked on too many things yet because my sin had not been fully developed right? My sins would continue to develop since then, but, but they hadn't been fully developed. What I need you to know, though, here, don't misunderstand me. I was just as lost. I needed Jesus just as bad at seven, and my understanding of that, as anybody else who were, was fully living out a life of addiction and, and sin nature that they were struggling to get away from. So I love it that Paul is just honest about the fact that, you know what, he is, he's man enough to admit that 
that he doesn't always feel like he's winning at this thing, that it's a struggle. Because folks, church is not a place for people who don't like sin anymore. Church is not a place for people who are better at hiding their sin than anybody else. Church is a place where we come in and we admit our sin, we confess our sin, and we lean on Jesus for the grace to forgive us of our sin. So fighting this sin nature that Paul talks about, we've got to quit pretending and we've got to get real. And what Paul explains here is that we have to die to our sin nature. So I'm going to give us three things this morning in terms of what I believe is a way that we can continue to die to our sin nature. Number one, come clean. Come clean. We've got to quit pretending. We have to admit our sin and we have to be able to admit it to ourselves. We need to be able to be truthful with ourselves and with others. If there are other people in your life saying, hey, that's an issue in your life, you need to listen. If you're saying, no, no, it's not, it's not. I don't have any problem with that. I got control of it. I'm all good. If there, it's not just about you. If your issues, if your addictions, if the things, if your sin nature, let's not pretend that it's all about us. Our sin nature leaks out onto everybody around us. And it tends to hurt other people. So we need to listen to others when they, when they speak to us and say, come clean. This is not good for you. In John chapter 4, God, uh, Jesus uh, is, and his disciples are walking uh, through, going, doing their ministry. And they come through the town of Samaria. And Jesus has this inter interesting interaction with a woman uh, at the well. Now, there's lots of parts of that, but this is the part I want to hone in on. First of all, the, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't really interact with each other. So when she comes to the well um, to get water, Jesus is there by himself because his disciples had left him. Jesus had gotten tired. If you're tired this morning, you're in good company. Jesus got tired. Uh, Jesus napped, by the way, so feel free to take one of those this afternoon, all right? Um, Jesus napped. But he's there by himself. His disciples go off to get food, and this woman comes midday, and he asks her for water because apparently she has the ability to dip down and, and get some water. They end up having this discussion that leads them to talking about living water, and Jesus begins to, to move into metaphor and saying, you know, maybe you should be asking me for living water, and this is what she says. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. He totally changes the subject. She said, oh, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus calls her right out. He's not saying you're not worthy, you can't come. He's not saying living water isn't for you. He's saying come clean about where you are. He's pointing out sin in her life that's a problem. And here's the bottom line. I don't care what you say about what marriage represented in that culture versus what it represents in this culture, but everybody knows whether you are actually married according to society's understandings or you are not. And if you are sleeping with someone who is not your married spouse, it is sin. And he's pointing that out for whatever the circumstances. That's, that's what he's pointing out. He's not beating her up. He's just saying to her like he's going to say to many other people, Go and sin no more. And this is how she responds. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. 
He told me everything I ever did. She comes clean and she is still welcome. She's not excluded because of her sin, but Jesus doesn't let it slide either. He calls her on it in the most loving way he can. Folks, this is our witness. When we don't defend and deny the things that we're doing, but when we come clean. Number two, confess to one another. Confess to one another. Now, this is an odd one. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you understand the idea of confessionals, right? You go and you confess to this random dude who's called a priest, and they have their reasons and understanding for why they do that. Um, and, but by and large, everyone who's not a Catholic, Protestants, do not confess to a certain priest. Frankly, a lot of us don't confess at all. Right? We've kind of fallen out of the habit altogether. And I would say that that's not exactly accurate either. Because in the book of James, look what James says. James 5, 13 through 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. That's why we do that sometimes. We pour oil. We're just following what James is, is telling us to do uh, in the new church. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, are you ready? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, I think a lot of us would like to say, well, listen, my sin is my problem, and I'm confessing it to God, but nobody else needs to know about it. They're just going to gossip about it anyway, and I don't really need to tell anybody else about it. But you know what? Jesus set us in community. He set us in community for a few reasons, and not the least of which is accountability, where we confess something that we're struggling with, not so other people make fun of us, not so other people exclude us, but so that other people link arms with us and hold us up when we're struggling in whatever our particular area is. Because what I struggle with may not be what you struggle with. What you struggle with may not be what I struggle with. So we hold each other up, but we confess to one another. In the fall, we have a, a ladies' overnight retreat. And for a couple of years now, we've been going down to this really fabulous cabin in uh, Pigeon Forge. And uh, it has, we have our sessions in this big, beautiful hall. And then there's these outside porches that wrap around. And we use that for our ministry time. If you're new to the vineyard here, at the end of service, you'll see some of our prayer team will come stand here. And they'll be available for you to come up for prayer during the last song. So we kind of did the same thing at this retreat. Only I told the prayer team ahead of time, I said, listen, we're going to try something new. Usually we have people come up for prayer and they just come up and say, you know, I need prayer for this, that, or the next thing, and, and we pray over them. I said, this time I'm going to encourage the women to come up and confess something. I'm not going to tell them what. I'm just going to say, just come up and confess. We're going to follow the, the teachings of James here about that. I said, and our job as prayer people is we're not going to comment on that. There's no commentary. We're not going to say, oh, me too. <laughs> I struggle with that too. No, we're just going to pray for them based on whatever they've confessed so that they may be healed. Maybe it's a physical healing. Maybe it's a spiritual healing. Maybe it's an emotional healing. But we're going to pray over people. We're going to keep this confidential. But you will have some accountability with that person, whoever it is that you came up and, and prayed to. You know, I didn't think anybody would respond to that. I'm like, we may have exactly zero ministry tonight. <laughs> 
But they did. The ladies came forward and there was weeping and, and so much restoration that happened that night when we're willing to confess. You know, in our small group, we told you we're studying the Romans thing. And in our discussion in our small group last week, we talked about the fact that some of us have actually confessed wrongs to other people and, and, and they've been flabbergasted by it, especially if it's a non-believer. My story was that when I was a young, a, a young mother and, and um, there were several of us girls, we had about eight women who were all in our 20s and we all had babies and, and uh, so we met once a week and studied God's word and prayed for each other. And, and um, I, I don't know what happened one time, I don't know, it's not untypical that this would happen, I suppose, but the conversation just went sideways a little bit and we probably gossiped about something. I have no idea, I don't even remember. What I do remember is the next day, one of the girls in that group called me on the phone. And she said, I just need to, to tell you that I'm really sorry about what I said yesterday. I think that was out of line, and I shouldn't have said that. And it wasn't against me. It was about somebody else. She said, I shouldn't have said that, and I need to ask your forgiveness. No one had ever done that to me before. And I was like, oh, it's, it's fine. And she goes, no, it isn't. It's not fine. It's not okay. I really, I, I need to respond to God's conviction that I should not have said that, and I just need you to know I'm sorry, and would you forgive me? And I said, absolutely. I gained so much respect for that woman to this day. That's all I think about when I think of her, is I think about her integrity and her life with Jesus. And we had stories in our small group of when we have actually apologized to a non-believer and said, you know what, I wronged you. I wronged you in some way that I am convicted by, and that is not representative of, of Christ living in me, and I just need to ask your forgiveness that I've done that. Folks, there is so much more witness than that than living some perfect life. Non-believers are fairly annoyed by our perfection or our pretended perfection, right? All that does is make people feel like they can't measure up. Well, I can't do that. I ain't gonna be one of them. Or it's like, do I have to fake it when I get there? Because it looks like everybody inside that building is like pretending a little bit because I see them on Monday and Tuesday, right? No, when we're honest and we're honorable and we confess, it's an unbelievable tool to help reach other people. I'm not saying to be manipulative. I'm saying be honest about confessing the sins that we have. Now, as I say that, let me add one more thing. I've said this in other venues, but I'm going to say it here. There is a big, big difference between being transparent and being naked. There's a difference between being transparent about the things that you have done and that you have sinned in and being absolutely naked to the point that you're exploitive about the things God has saved you from. You don't have to give all the gory details and make this some sensational thing that brings more attention on you and, uh, and, and does that sort of deal or is just a, a, like, it's just a voyeuristic situation. You don't have to do that. You can be transparent about saying, I sinned without giving more details than you need to give. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of the sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Finally, number three, set your compass toward Jesus. Set your compass 
toward Jesus. I wanted to give you a, a picture this morning of, of a compass from uh, Joe's grandfather. It's one of the few uh, artifacts that we have from his grandfather that he never got to meet. Um, but I, I wasn't able to find it in time. But, but know this, a compass isn't something we use that much anymore because we have GPS in our phone. But understand this, a compass is going to, to show you true north. It is all about direction. It tells you where to go. If you don't want to go north, you at least know where north is so you can go south. If you don't want to go north, you can at least go east. It, it gives you direction. Compass is very, very important. Right? We lived in Oklahoma for 10 years, and uh, I don't know if you know anything about that particular region of the country, but their roads are not like Kentucky. All right, uh, Kentucky was settled at a different time and under different circumstances, under different terrain. But in Oklahoma, where the land is flat, except for the canyons that cut through here and there, um, that particular region of the country, in addition to some other states, were settled by the Northwest Land Ordinance of 1785. And that means it was surveyed and distributed for settlement in acre um, uh, by mile markers, right? So it was a six mile by six mile. But now when you go out there, all the roads, are one mile by one mile square, set perfectly north, south, east, and west. So many of the roads aren't even named. When we moved out there, it was like, okay, here's the grid. You just need to go two miles south and three miles west and two miles east, whatever. It would, that's how you found your way around was just by those directions. It tells you where to go. It's very important to know where true north is. Paying attention to a compass also does another thing. It protects you. It protects you. Um, I'm not sure people thought about it this way, but I am very gratified that in the house that we live in now, the wind hits the garage before it hits the main part of the house. In the house we were in before, I would have set the compass and, and arranged that house a little differently. The wind came out of the southwest and hit us directly on the corner of the living room. And it took a lot more energy to heat that home. Now that it hits my garage, I don't need as much energy to, it, there's a protection there. We know which way we're gonna be attacked from. We know what's coming. Setting our compass is very, very helpful. Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that's really talking about here is where your feet are pointed to. Look at this word up here. This is a Greek word in the original language that is translated in that verse to be sinned. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but understand that it means to miss the mark to do wrong or to sin. And here's the image that that word is referring to. The image is referring to archery, okay? My grandson just uh, started into archery, but uh, my husband's shot bow and arrow for a long time. But in archery, you're pulling back and you are aiming at a target of some sort. Whether you're shooting at, for an animal or you're shooting at a, at a plain target, you're aiming at that. If you pull your arrow back and you don't hit the trajectory right or you're too far away or whatever, your arrow may fall short of the target. That's to sin. It may not hit the bullseye because it fell short, but you're aiming in that direction. That's a very different activity than if you look at the target there and you turn around and you shoot this direction. You aren't even trying. You aren't even trying. You're going to miss the mark over there as well. But this on this one, you are falling short of it. But you're aiming at the bullseye, right? This is a matter of pointing our feet toward Jesus. We're not going to win every time. We're going to be like Paul. We're going to do things we don't want to do. 
But we are aiming toward that target. We're pointing that way. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We don't need to grow weary and lose heart. When I, we lived in Oklahoma, we mowed a large section of land and uh, the mower, some, I, I believe in, in making straight lines. My father was a farmer and he used to make fun of the farmers who had crooked rows. I wasn't very friendly, but he did. And so I was very cautious about that. And so I want a straight row when I'm mowing. And if I look down at the ground as I'm mowing, I'm all over the place. But if I would come back at the edge of the property and I would set my plumb line and I would fix my eye on a tree way down there, fix my eye on something way down further, and I'd keep my eye on it while I'm driving or pushing, I would look back and I would have an unbelievably straight road. I'd set my plumb line and I would have something. Folks, sometimes we're taking the short view of things and we're struggling and we've got to take that long view. Keep our eyes on Jesus. We've got to look out a little further than the end of our nose at what our actions are actually aiming toward. What are we lining ourselves up to have? What are we lining ourselves up to be? What are we lining ourselves up to do at the end of the time? Because you'll grow weary and lose heart. We need to admit that walking with Jesus isn't always as easy as we as it looks we might even need some help some help from community and Paul reminds us in the book of Romans that we don't even just get that help from ourselves that God has given us the Holy Spirit to give us that help to wage this war we're never going to win it if we don't come clean about the fact that we struggle if we don't confess our sins we're never going to repent from them and if we don't set our compass and fix our eyes set our minds on things above, we will grow weary and lose heart. Folks, I don't know if you're weary this morning, but these people are ready to pray for you if you are. Maybe there's something in your life that you would really like to confess and just be done with it, and you know that coming clean would do a world of good for you. It would give you accountability, and you know that the Spirit is prompting you toward that. Nobody's going to broadcast anything that you say up here to any of these people. They just want to pray for you. And if you have never had that time in your life that you can point to, that that is the place in your walk where you surrendered your life toward Je to Jesus, can I invite you to make today your day? This is the day. If you're like, yes, I've been on this journey toward Jesus. I don't know exactly where it started or whatever, but I want a spot in my journey where I stopped and I said, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I surrender all to you. We would love to lead you in that prayer this morning. Anybody up here can do that for you. Let's come to our feet. What's going to happen is we're going to go into one last song. And anytime during this song, feel free to make your way forward for prayer.